to the Prepared Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Austin, and welcome in. If you are a first-time listener to the podcast, happy to have you guys along with us for this week's episode. And this is one, actually, I have been trying for a while to get this guest locked down and on the schedule. Uh, I know the assumption from a lot of folks is when you do a podcast, you know, that it's just sending a message over social medias or something. <clears throat> hey, you want to want to sit down for a chat? And they go, hey, cool. And you're like, cool. And they're like, all right, let's do it. And you record and then you have a podcast. Uh, the sad truth to the matter, not so sad, but just the reality, I suppose, is that people have lives and they have jobs and there's a lot of other stuff that is going on for all of us in addition to some uh, other challenges that sometimes just can't be helped. So, in the case of this week's guest, there's a little challenge of a four-hour time difference. Uh, I'm joined this week by Amy. You guys might know her as Amy556 on Instagram, and she's actually four hours behind me, uh, which is crazy. She's in Alaska. I'm in Detroit. Uh, we're recording around 6 o'clock Eastern time, so it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon where she is, and that's crazy because I've dealt with some one-hour time differences uh, from a whole slew of different people in a whole slew of different cities and states across the country, uh, but none that are uh, quite four hours. So it'll be a really interesting discussion, uh, as well as what Amy brings to this discussion, because being in Alaska where it's perpetually it feels like anyways, probably a perpetual state of winter or at least cold weather that many of us are not used to. There's challenges that come to that. There's obviously wildlife, which we don't encounter in, you know, the lower 48 that I'm sure that she has to deal with or has training questions to deal with things like scout rifles uh, and things like that, as well as some weapons platforms, maybe that don't perform as well in the cold weather in the cold climates that just you know, you have to be aware of that because it's the reality of your environment. <clears throat> so it should be a really, really cool conversation. Uh, I've been trying to get Amy on for like a year and we just could not make our schedules work. So we were finally able to get this stuff lined up and I'm really, really stoked to sit down and hear everything she has to share with you guys uh, and get into a bunch of stuff about, you know, shooting and training and, and all that good jazz. Uh, before I get over to this week's discussion, as always, we have some really good sponsors we have to talk about and some people we have to say thank you to. Uh, we are a podcast here that runs off the efforts of some really, really great companies in the industry, as well as some awesome, awesome Patreon patrons. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you guys are looking for a way to support us, I really do recommend you go check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash prepared underscore mindset underscore pod. And if you guys need the link to it, it's in the link tree of our Instagram. And guys, if you're a patron, thank you so much. And if you're not a patron, go sign up. Check out all the good stuff we got going on there. We have uh, videos and blog posts. We have some exclusive recorded episodes that won't be aired here on the podcast. And those videos don't make it to our YouTube channel either. If you're looking for exclusive content, you want to know what your money's getting you. That's what's going on with the Patreon page. Every bit of what we get through Patreon comes back to support the effort here, like microphones and, you know, other efforts and things like that to enhance your listening experience to the prepared mindset. <clears throat> so if it's something you really enjoyed, you really like listening to the pod and you like what we're about and what we're doing here, head on over to patreon.com. It's a great, great way to support us and get access to some really, really cool information in the process. 
but in addition to our patrons, we have to say a big thank you to a couple industry partners that have been very, very supportive to us. We're very blessed to have them as partners and need to say thank you with that to a couple select companies, starting with our friends over at Custom Night Vision. Guys, if you're looking to get into night vision, it's not too late. You didn't miss out on crazy sales. I mean, you did, but the crazy sales from Black Friday, they don't make or break you. The Christmas sales, a lot of which are still kind of lingering on and going on as we're kind of just getting out of the holidays here at the beginning of January, head on over to customnightvision.com and check out everything that they have in stock. If you're looking for your very first setup, we really recommend something like a PVS-14, a, a monocular setup, green phosphor, white phosphor, both outstanding options, and there's a bunch of them in stock at Custom Night Vision. You can get tubes from Photonis, from Elbit, from L3, and if you guys know what that means, the nice part is, is that the team over at Custom is ready to assist you. They have a really, really robust insight chat function so that their team can field your questions and put you at ease when you're getting ready to drop some serious dough on your very first night vision setup. And maybe you're somebody who's been rocking the PVS 14 for a couple years. You were kind of ahead of the curve. You were into, you know, night vision before it was cool and you're ready to move up to some binos. They have a ton of units in stock. The 1431 Mark II is like what they sent me. Absolutely outstanding unit. I love mine. They have them in stock. If you're looking for some RPNVGs because you want something that's built like a tank, they have those in stock and available as well. Tons of other options, you guys. And every one of their units, you can actually see images of the tube. So you know before you commit to purchase that you're going to have a blem free picture. And if there is a blem, you want to understand where it is, what you're paying for, all those good things. The guys over at Custom want to make sure you have the most transparent buying experience as possible when you're out there looking for night vision and they want to support you just as much as they can give you absolutely everything that you need and nothing more and guys that's outstanding to have in a company if you're looking to just beef up your setup they also sell helmets from opscore and team wendy they've got steiner lasers they've got malls optics lights they still have a really really good deal going on an acro p2 if you guys are looking for one of those pistol mounted optics all kinds of good stuff head on over to customnightvision.com today and check it out for yourself thank you as well to hrt guys if you have not heard about hrt tactical gear check out the website. It's hrttacticalgear.com. And you can look at all of the great placards, all of the great plate carriers, all of the awesome accessories for their arc belt line that they have out there, or check out their AWLS weapon mounted light system. It's a super unique offering for one of you, you know, if you're one of those guys that really, really likes the pressure pad, you don't like having cords and strings and stuff all over your blaster. I get it. It is an option that is custom tailored for you, and it actually has different levels of adjustability so that you can't, or it's much more difficult, I should say, to have an ND with the weapon light. All of their gear that I've played with so far, their LBAC carrier, their arc belt, both of them use the Tigris material. Everything I've dealt with so far is absolutely outstanding. We had Walsh on from Thin Line Defense. He actually you know, helped with the design of their pistol and rifle mag pouches, which I run. And to me, they come out of the box with the absolute perfect retention. You couldn't ask for a better option, in my opinion. Guys, one more time, head on over to hrttacticalgear.com. Check it out for yourselves and pick up some new gear today. Finally here, a big thank you to the team over at 100 Concepts, who's actually, if you guys keep up with their social media, getting ready to expand into a new building. Super exciting to see that these guys are having the amount of success that they are. Their company motto is do good, be dangerous, and live free. Guys, if you haven't 
you know, checked out anything beyond their light caps, anything beyond their scope caps, you're really, really missing out with all the wonderful stuff that 100 has going on. And they have a couple really sweet drops coming for 2024. I'm really excited for their aperture caps. So if you guys are rocking some night vision from our friends over at Custom, you can head on over to 100 Concepts and pick up some of their aperture caps in the very near future. In addition to that, you can get some pack scrim and helmet scrim, uh, maybe some, you know, multicam alpine to go with the wonderful snow that we're getting up here in Michigan. Unless you live in one of the southern states, and you can pick up some multicam tropic uh, or just some, you know, plain old multicam. It's going to serve you a little bit better. 100concepts.com, you guys, a bunch of great options out there and a bunch of awesome dudes doing the right things, doing the work, giving you guys some great options. Check it out for yourselves. So thank you to all of our sponsors and guys, I'm serious, uh, head on over and check those guys out. I know, you know, during the holidays, they all ran sales. I think that 100 still has sales going on some of the combo packages with their shock collars and scope caps and shock collars and, uh, light caps and things like that. So if you're looking to kind of beef up a setup, if you're looking to, you know, really pull things together, you got, uh, you know, a new weapon light or something, or, or just got pieces and components for a new weapon light, like Josh did, and you just finished building it out. You need a light cap, head on over to 100 Concepts, pick it up. Head on over to HRT Tactical Gear to pick up some you know, new nylon and go check out what's going on over at Custom. If you're even entertaining the idea of night vision, it it really is more achievable than what a lot of us think it is. Um, so you know, super happy to work with those guys and looking forward to a very fruitful 2024 with all of our sponsors. Um, but back to, back to business here, uh, Amy and I have an absolutely outstanding conversation lined up for you guys. Uh, I have no doubts that it'll be very, very enjoyable and very insightful. If you guys follow what she does on Instagram, it is a lot of training. It's not the super high speed whiz bang, go fast stuff that is, you know, kind of overproduced and overpromoted that we see from some people, which I enjoy just the same. But really what Amy talks about a lot is how to make you a better shooter. And I'm really looking forward to kind of picking her brain on how she approaches shooting as an overall concept and sharing all that information with you guys. So with that, I am going to halt any additional delays and cut us on over to my discussion with Amy 556. Here we go, guys. Amy, welcome to the pod. How are you? Good. I'm super excited to be here. I'm happy we were able to uh, pull it together. I know I reached out. It was actually, I was crazy. I looked back and it was like last year, this yeah. time almost. And it's like, it's it just anytime I thought about it, I was like, oh yeah, I'll shoot. I'll shoot you a message. I'll check in and then didn't. And then, you know, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months, turned into a year. So I'm happy that we're finally able to sit down and connect. Yes, this worked out perfectly. And um, for anybody, I'm sure a lot of listeners um, don't know who I am. I'm a parole officer. I'm, I work up in Alaska. I've been doing parole for 19 years now. And uh, my name is Amy, by the way, if we didn't get that across yet. But uh, yeah, Amy Abbott. And uh, in addition to my day job, I'm a firearms trainer, both at work. And then I own a small business where I train civilians, military, law enforcement, anybody that wants to come to my classes. It's open enrollment up here in Alaska. And I'm an avid hunter and competitive shooter. So, so did, you were, oh, sorry, you were reaching out to me, uh, work was just so chaotic. It seemed like every time we scheduled it, something would come up and I'd have to work overtime or be in a, a different area of the state and it just didn't work out. So I'm really grateful that you kept 
reaching out and giving me a chance. No, I, I mean, it, plus that uh, that pesky four hour time difference between the, you know, uh, what you have going on and, and what I have going on is uh, it, it's create It's interesting. You know, I had to be creative to try and like figure out how to make it work, but it's all good. Um, this is a first for me, so I'm excited as well. Yeah. Oh, where are you? Um, I am like 20 minutes outside Detroit, so I'm in Michigan. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you guys have real winters there, just like us, probably worse than us. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, you guys probably have better roads than us. So our roads combined with, uh, you know, poor infrastructure and snow, it might be a little worse. Um, you know, I mean, I would, I would think that yours would be worse, but I really don't know. I mean, up here we're today is like a high of 48, so it's not too bad. Um, but by the end of this week, we'll be getting into the low twenties. Um, which uh-huh. will suck <laughs> and um, it kind of hangs out there for about the entire month of well from like the middle of January to like the middle of February we're we're in the 20s somewhere it's a little miserable yeah I know it can get really cold there and that definitely impacts people's motivation to get out and train I know I was a lot more hardcore about it the last four or five winters and I'm sort of getting to the point where, you know, all through the winter I'm dealing with cracked fingertips and chapped lips. And I think a lot of uh, people that shoot a lot during the winter or work in law enforcement have at one point or another frostbitten or gotten close on a lot of their fingertips or toes. And so as you get older, that stuff starts getting more sensitive and it's like, do I really want to be in the cold if it's under 20 degrees? I really have to think about that. So right now it's 17 and I thought about going out to the range today. I try to get out um, once or twice a week in the winter, um, but I've just been worse and worse about it this year. And I've waited for fair weather, which I consider to be, you know, over 20 degrees. Yeah. Uh, I had a buddy who used to be a state trooper here who actually um, did. He got uh, frostbite on his ears uh, because he oh. either yeah, didn't like the hat he was issued or, or had or something. And then um, he had never had frostbite. So his lovely wife, when he got home, uh, put an ice pack on it, which then made it worse. And uh, long story short, he now works for a federal agency in a state that is much warmer. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> the troopers do have pretty dumb hats, but uh, I could I could not see being out in that kind of weather without one. That's crazy. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, with the the roads and stuff here, uh, I do feel for our law enforcement because we have so many issues, people going off roads and flats and wheels coming off and stuff. And um, I mean, I was not surprised when he told me he got frostbite. I was not surprised. The part with the cold pack was an interesting twist. I did not expect that. Um, but yeah, uh, I asked him like, dude, do you like put a hat on or something? I guess there's probably only so much you can do when it gets real bad out, though. So yeah. Uh, it is what it is. Use that trooper's wife as a nurse. Yeah. Uh, she is a music therapist. She's a very nice lady, but, uh, <laughs> um, and so when you were, if you do go out, so, you know, the plus 20 degree weather, what does that look like for you in terms of like, like time? Cause usually if it's in the thirties, I can hang, you know, uh, for probably up to about four hours or so, four and a half hours. And then I kind of start to pack it in. Um, but it sounds like it might be worse up there with you guys. Oh, so I get, I was just talking to one of my best friends in the world about this the other day. When I get zoned into a training exercise or drill, I go so hard that I don't stop. I don't notice that I'm stumbling, mumbling, fumbling, which are the three signs of like 
creating hypothermia. And so I do a lot of training alone and I'll just get really dialed in. Like, I'm not going to stop this until I get it below a, you know, whatever the time is for the drill that I'm after. And mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I've discovered over the years is that I don't know if I'm just more excited about shooting. So I'm more in the zone, but I can outlast so many people when it comes to training or teaching classes, or if it's just me and a buddy out there, they're like, Oh, I need to go into the truck. And I'm like, I feel fine. What the heck? So I think it comes down to, um, preparedness. So, uh, probably the longest I've spent in super cold weather was two Januarys ago. We did a steel challenge and for anybody listening that doesn't know what that is, um, that's a USPSA sponsored event. It's probably the, I think it's the best gateway to competitive shooting there is it's, um, standing in a box and then you have different arrays of five pieces of steel and you just from the holster have to hit each piece of steel, one time each and you get five runs at each stage, they drop your worst run and then, you know, you're scored against people. And it's just a fantastic way to get into shooting because you learn the range commands. Um, you get used to the timer and you get used to being in a competitive environment where other people are watching you. So it's a great, a great way to get into the shooting sports, but we did a steel challenge match and those typically last about two hours. It was negative 15 and we were fine. Um, we had big suits on and, uh, I know the range officer had a big fur hat on. Um, but when you get into those temperatures, you have to do um, two main things. Uh, one, you have to have base layers and they don't have to be bougie REI, uh, like the, what is that called? Uh, I don't even have anything of this brand. Oh, smart wool. It doesn't have to be that. It can totally be the Costco base layers that are $10 for a top and a bottom. Um, and then you also have to have hand warmers and that's a real game changer for so many people that don't use them. So I'll pack, I won't use the toe warmers, like the flat ones that stick to your sock because I don't get enough heat out of them. I'll actually put like the puffy into my boot. So one or two of those, depending on how big my boots are, you have to have wool socks. And then as far as hand warmers go, I pack my pockets with like two or three hand warmers per pocket. And people always ask about gloves and shooting. What are the warmest gloves? And my answer is always, you're never going to get warmth out of a glove in those temperatures. The best it's going to do is be a wind barrier for you. So pick a glove that is very dexterous, like the SKD tactical pig gloves or mechanics wear makes a 0.5 millimeter. They're half millimeter thick. Uh, You can get them on Amazon. Those are fantastic shooting gloves. Uh, No matter what, I always cut the fingertip off and Sam over at SKD is always like, Amy, quit cutting the fingertips off of our uh, pig gloves. And I'm like, I have to, I just have to have that dexterity. So get some real dexterous thin gloves. And then whenever you're not shooting, you have to have your hands in your pockets just to, just to save your hands. Um, A lot of stories up here of survival, people getting stuck on snow machines out in the middle of nowhere and surviving in sub-zero temps. Uh, the people were smart enough to keep moving. So jumping up and down in their snowsuit, they don't hunker down, they're running around. Um, and you want to stay warm enough to right where you're about to break a sweat, but you don't want to get sweaty because uh, that would be the end in cold weather. So um, m- m- I bring that up because during matches, you'll see me jumping up and down a lot in place or just kind of running around trying to stay warm. But to answer your question, uh, I'm really into it. So I can stay out there in sub-zero temps for hours with the correct uh preparation base layers and hand warmers yeah i mean we were out um last weekend whatever uh new year's eve and uh-huh. just zeroing optics uh, i think it was like 34 because we started getting some flurries but <clears throat> uh yeah like four or four and a half hours it wasn't bad base layers uh i was surprised i was in just like a under armor like uh 
wasn't really a turtleneck, but like a base layer from Under Armour and a zip up fleece hoodie and a base Perfect. layer and jeans. Yeah. And like no gloves. Uh, absolutely yeah. fine the entire time uh, until it got to like just, I don't want to say fine motor movements, but like I, I, I felt it a little bit more when I was going to like load mags or like staple targets, but the rest of it, it, it was not unenjoyable. Um, at least not for the cold. Uh, our particular range had like a, uh, a muzzle loader event. So we had people like dressed up as reenactors taking up all the parking, <laughs> the good ranges. So we got the ones that were flooded. Uh, oh. so it was very wet and muddy, but, uh, you know, we, we worked around it. No big deal. Um, do you guys run into, and so because you guys get temperatures so much colder, like if it was negative 15 here, like, <laughs> uh, my ass ain't going out. Um, but with like certain <laughs> weapons platforms and things, I know there's been a lot of videos out there on people like testing ammo and like ARs versus AKs and stuff because of the cold, does that start to affect when people try to like run a gun and it just, it won't eat? Not at all. It, that, I think it's so funny when I see those videos where guys are like cold weather test and they'll take an AR and dunk it in the snow. And I'm just like, that's not a cold weather test. That's just a wet gun. Um, and it'll pass, I promise. So I think being out in sub-zero temperatures for two hours with an AR, you're going to start seeing things like optics maybe start to fail or start to fog, especially if you take an optic from outside into your vehicle or into a house, you're going to see fogging um, on, on many of them. Aim points are pretty good, um, but even then just a little bit. What really, what cold weather really affects, it's kind of funny, is 22, because a lot of 22 casings are coated in wax, or um, you, you wouldn't even be able to tell, but um, there's a little wax coating around where the bullet goes into the cartridge. And so when that gets cold, it gets thick and there's tons of feeding issues. And so if you have little uh, 22 pistols or um, PCCs, you know, um, you, you'll see a lot of malfunctions with 22 ammo. Otherwise, uh, everything is is pretty much the same in cold weather. The worst thing I've had to deal with in cold weather is... Like I told you, I cut the fingertips off my gloves. And if you touch a metal on an AR-15 when it's negative 15, the metal is negative 15. I mean, it's super cold. So it'll actually almost burn you when you touch it. So that's just one thing you have to um, watch out for. Otherwise, everything runs flawlessly in the cold. And I think these cold weather tests are just hilarious and sort of gimmicky. Well, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't put something on the Internet that wasn't true. That wouldn't they wouldn't do that to us. Right. I mean. Right. Um, it, it is, I, I do find it a bit comical. I mean, like, yeah, if you want to load it up with water and freeze it and see if it can, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I used to think there was something to it. I, the more I, the more I read, the more I see, I don't know. Um, like we were talking right before, uh, we hit record. I think there's just a lot of misconceptions with cold weather and cold climate. Like I was telling you when I was in school, people always said, oh, well, if you live in Alaska, you got to run your car year round because it'll freeze. And it's like, that's not. I don't think that's a thing. Right. is it? Yeah. I think that I always tell people when they ask uh, cold weather questions related to um, gear and how it's going to run, I just say, you know what? It's just in cold weather, you need to take care of the shooter. That's way more important than taking care of the gun or, you know, any problems you're going to have the optic. The other thing that really fascinates me is flashlights. I leave flashlights in my center console in my truck all winter long and they they always work like the batteries don't drain it's it's really wild how the flashlights will still run even though they're stored in cold weather yeah and i think that's probably a 
like the battery technology has come a long way. If you're getting like lithium and even some just if you buy if you don't buy a cheap shitty flashlight, I find that yeah. you have a lot less issues, um, which sucks because they're more expensive, but then they also work when you need them. So it's worth it. And um, I never got that, uh, or at least once I started getting into all of this, right? Don't buy yeah. a $15, you know, I don't say mag light because those aren't cheap anymore, but I don't like a Rayovac, you know, at Meyer or something or whatever store, and then expect that to work in a time of most need, you know, um, invest. Yeah. Hardcore about flashlights at work when we're issuing them. Um, I used to be a big believer in Streamlight, and I definitely have the Streamlight ProTac rail mounts on a lot of my rifles. I think it's fine, but uh, Anchorage Police and some of these other agencies, these big agencies that use flashlights all the time, uh, it's funny at their academy, they have a box that just says broken Streamlights. And so they try to issue Surefire for everything. And, you know, a lot of the guys will go out and buy their own mod lights, which are super bougie. I love the mod lights. But if I'm if I'm pushing to buy things for officers at our agency, I'll push for Surefire. Um, because it works all the time. And then you get into the discussion as our department slowly moves into red dots, because I don't think we're behind. I think a lot of the nation um, is finally, a lot of law enforcement in the nation, I should say, is finally sort of getting into the red dot territory. But I still think, you know, many agencies are only going to be able to afford irons for a long time. And that's sort of where we're at right now. We're just starting to implement red dots. But then, of course, you get that discussion on open emitters and whether or not that's okay for a place like Alaska. And I will say that I've used open emitters on competition guns for years. And like this summer, it was pretty much like Vietnam up here. It was every match was just pouring rain. I had to change raincoats multiple times on certain match days. Um, and open emitters just to me have never been a problem in the rain and in snow where open emitters are a problem is if you drop an optic into the snow and good luck, you're going to be sitting there for an hour or two until that dries out and it, you know, projects. Um, how it's supposed to again. But beyond that, um, I don't think open emitters really are a problem. Now that said, everything is liability driven as far as policy and law enforcement up here. So we have really pushed for closed emitters and um, chosen the 509T for most of the agencies. If you can get your hands on an ACRO, that's great. Uh, but if people ask me if they can carry a, an RMR or a Delta Point or something like that, I, I'm like, there's really no problem. Don't drop your gun in the snow or get into a ground fight, God forbid. I mean, that could happen. And then you could get snow packed into your holster and into your emitter, but um, it's they're super, super reliable outside of that small scenario where you drop it in the mud or the or the snow. Do you find that <clears throat> that most agencies, at least in like your interactions, your experiences, right, are are actually willing to entertain the discussion around dots? And it really is more of like yep. a fiscal decision because I I feel like and I've had this conversation with a couple of people right uh you do get unfortunately with law enforcement like the crotchety older dudes that are just not you know well iron sights don't take a battery and it's like well yeah right. but um there are some inherent advantages like shooting in low light and things that pistol dots really do bring to the discussion um yeah. and I really think that the battery thing is a little bit you're talking about with flashlights, right? Like there's enough of an advancement. I don't know that you're really behind a curve just having to do regular maintenance on your firearm, which you should be doing anyway. Right. Yeah. And you should have backup iron sights too. So, uh, you know, if, if and dots do fail more than I think people want to admit, 
Um, but not as much as the old, like you said, the old timers want to make it out to be. So I, I'm lucky enough to be in a generation where I've been in law enforcement for 19 years. So, you know, I came in in 2004, 2005 with a super old school, uh, you know, Jack Weaver knew everything about guns and that's how you held a gun and hammer pairs and, you know, all this ridiculous stuff. And I feel like my generation is now kind of getting to the age where we're starting to take over these high level administrative positions. And we have a lot of influence over the firearms program. So um, the best way that I have found to convince the people that have the money um, or the really high level administrators to move to dots is to put one in their hand. And so any chance I get to say like, Hey, I put a couple sticky notes up on the wall here, just hold this up in front of your face and take a look at it. And I don't need to say anything else. They're like, wow, this makes it so easy to stay target focused and threat focused and watch the subject's hands. This is way better in low light. And, and then the other thing I always say to them is the, the bad guys have these. And so we're at an extreme disadvantage when we're out there, especially in environments like Alaska or anywhere in the Pacific Northwest where it's just dark all the time. Um, and then you bring up statistics, you know, that 70% or I think it's over 70% of law enforcement officer involved shootings happen in the, in the dark. So, uh, throw a couple of things like that out there. And, and I think ultimately it ends up being, um, a fiscal limitation. So for our agency right now, we're the third Alaska department of corrections is the third largest law enforcement agency in the state behind the troopers and Anchorage police department. And so when you talk about having, you know, 150 plus officers on the streets with pistols, and the fact that it's about $1,100, that's just an estimate to get each gun upgraded to a red dot. You multiply that by 150 or however many shooters we have out there, and it, it comes with a huge price tag. And so I think the smaller agencies are able to afford it. Larger agencies are kind of just throwing money at the red dot programs as they can. But I think the smartest thing an agency can do is create policy that allows people to go and purchase their own gear and then, you know, have it inspected by a department armor so that it's up to spec. But by allowing officers to purchase their own guns and their own red dots, if they want to, I think that really opens up um, the door to get more officers on the street with dots. And I think that that's, there's a lot to be said for that last bit. You know, I mean, uh, if it's something that meets the requirements of the agency, like, like certainly no, you should not go out and get a Taurus with whatever you found on Amazon, you know, uh, in a dovetail optic mount or something. But for a lot of people, I, I know several, uh, of my friends who are in law enforcement who would do, do just that. Hey, I will go buy a 17 MOS or I'll go buy the 45 and I'll get my own dot. Like I will put that money out. I will do that. If I can, and for whatever reason, I don't understand the hesitancy. Maybe it's the budget on, you know, time to inspect. I, I, I really don't know. But you made a really good point. Yeah. The people that you're, I don't want to say going up against, but, you know, your opposition, criminals, right? Um, and especially in our southern states, right, with all the activity on the border, uh, they have those things. It's it's a real consideration when you're talking about leveling the playing field in terms of survivability and capability. Um, and I, I, man, I, I look at people that are really diehard iron sight people now and I go, are you sure that we can't, you don't want to try it? You want to yeah, give it a shot right. and see. Yeah. 
It's- yeah, I I definitely can understand the argument with irons being so reliable, but it's just like go and get backup sights, and then that becomes this whole discussion. It's I, even on my competition guns, I have backup sights because. I'm not going to say I don't trust optics, but not only do they fail because of battery, you know, and even if the battery doesn't fail, I've had hollow suns where the battery tray can come out the side. So any of you guys that have hollow suns, make sure that you're torquing that to spec and then making a witness mark um, so that you can see if that's starting to back out. But um, I've had optics full on fall off of guns and I know that's poor mounting, but it happens if you have a quick detach mount on a rifle or an aim point and you hit it against a barricade or something just right, it'll do what it's supposed to do and it will quickly detach. And so I always advocate for backup irons on rifles and pistols um, just because I've had so many experiences where I've, I've needed them. And, you know, in those cases, the old men are right. Irons are definitely need to be there when you need them. Yeah. Now with your, with your experience in training, right. Various agencies and civilians, even do you see a lot of that where it's, it's adopted, but not always understood because I think it's one thing for an agency or, or whatever, right. To throw money and go here, just take it. But then to really understand that there is, uh, something to be said, you know, the issues with like the Glock MOS plates, like the factory ones and just being trash. And if you're not read up on it, you're probably not going to know to like get rid of those and spend an extra 40 bucks or 60 bucks. Um, do you see a lot of that in, in your teaching? Oh, yeah. So that's why I love teaching government agencies, because I can, to some degree, control the consistency of the gear that's coming in. And uh, I can control, you know, how it was installed for my agency. Uh, But with civilians, every I, I try to do a lot of upfront consultation with students coming into my class. So like, either meet on the phone with them before class starts or, you know, be in text contact with them. And then for my civilian classes, I always have two or three backup rifles and I have a whole duffel bag full of pistols with holsters and mags because inevitably two or three students out of 10 or 12 will bring the wrong gun or just end up um, not being able to use a rifle because the optic is just trash. Oh my gosh. I had the most, I had the awesomest dude in one of my rifle classes last summer and He had this really old school optic. I don't even know where he got it, but he had it like up duct taped on top of the charging handle of one of those old, it wasn't a Colt LE 6920 or anything cool like that. It was like a Bushmaster, but um, he had it taped up there and it just wouldn't work. And I was like, oh, let's try to get it off. But the way he'd mounted it, it was like hard to get it off. And I just said, do you want to shoot one of my rifles for the day? And he's like, yeah, that'd be awesome. (laughs) So uh, when, when I bring backup rifles and backup pistols to classes, it's cool because it allows me to not be stuck on that one student wing, get back on the curriculum. But also when I lend them my gear, it gets them sort of hooked on either my rifle or my optic. And, um, you know, we can keep going from there, but yeah, faulty gear with civilian students is definitely an impediment. And as a private instructor, I try to do as much as I can before class to make sure that they have the right stuff coming in. That's awesome. Because like I've been in a rifle class where that was an issue. Uh, actually both rifle classes I took, it was always mag pouches though. Like we had one old guy show up with the most janky optic riser, uh, situation you've probably ever seen like two risers stacked on top of each other. And then it was like a vortex crossfire, right. Uh, oh God. Which, which comes with the lower one third mount, but he didn't use that. He used the direct mount and two really crappy Amazon risers. Um, <laughs> 
and then was reloading out of the cargo pockets on his pants. And then the next class, same thing, guy shows up, has a like Smith & Wesson M&P Sport 2, which is a great starter rifle. No, no knock oh. on that. And didn't show up with anything to reload out of. And like I at the time I had a holster sponsor. I was like, here, man, you can take this clip on, uh, you know, like like mag pouch or whatever. Tried giving it back to me at the end of class. I was like, no, no, no. You need this more than I do. It's all good, man. Like, just take their business card, go buy more. Like, God bless. Um, he was also the dude that flagged the class like seven times and was really a problem. But um, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always like the goofiest stuff too. I never feel like I've, I get the stories. People are like, Oh, somebody's gun fed the wrong ammo and it exploded. It's always just dumb stuff. Like, do you have YouTube? Can you look this up? Like, come on. Yeah. And you know, a lot in the other thing is I realize as a civilian who came into law enforcement and didn't know the first thing about guns, you know, I look back at how little I knew and how I just really appreciated the patience of anybody that would explain to me the why behind this or, hey, come here, your holster's like way too far back. Let me help you adjust it. Um, I always appreciated that level of patience. And then as I got into rifles, because we don't have rifles uh, for our agency, the prison, the prison side of our agency does, but we don't on the parole and probation side. Um, So I had to learn rifles top to bottom from you know, Lucas Bodkin on YouTube and Travis Haley and whatever he would put out back in the day. And so when I went to my first rifle class, I actually, you know, got a hold of the teacher and said, what pouches am I supposed to have? What, I mean, I really made sure that I came prepared for, for that, but I don't expect everybody to have that level of preparedness because I know they don't love a lot of people that are taking my classes, don't have the love for guns that I do. And my goal is to create that in them. And they're not going to love it if they show up feeling like they look stupid or that they're unprepared because instead of focusing on sights, trigger, grip, all the stuff, all the fundamentals that I need them to focus on to be successful, they're going to be sitting here going like, my belt's too tight. Or I just feel like I look stupid because, you know, everybody else has these cool taco pouches and I'm loading it. So I always bring extra gear for them. I always try to talk to them before class. Um, I take, I, built a firearms instructor curriculum for our department last year. And, um, it was really, really successful. The officers that came through that class and made it through are some of the most phenomenal law enforcement instructors in the country at this point. But I really harp on the triangle of success when it comes to teaching people firearms. And that is you have to make sure that the gear part of it is right. That is one whole part of the triangle. So that means make sure their firearms in good working order, make sure they have the correct caliber, the correct ammo, make sure they have all the stuff on their, um, all the stuff that they need on their gear belt, make sure they stay warm, make sure they um, have everything that they physically need to feel like they look cool or look like they fit in and stuff that's going to work. And then the other part of that triangle, of course, is the skill itself. So you actually have to be able to teach the fundamentals and then attitude and mental preparedness is the other part of it. And the way that you keep their attitude good is make sure they have food and water, but that gear component of it is so overlooked. Instructors think like, Oh, like you said, you should just research it and know what to bring before class um, and bring a good attitude and we'll teach you the other skills, but man, if that gear part of it isn't there, they're going to spend eight hours. So hung up on that one little thing that you're not going to get anything out of them as far as developing them as shooters. Yeah. It's a weird, um, 
it's like a psychological component to it that it's and and it's to me it it's right in the same conversation with like <clears throat> kind of why instructors should demo drills um and even if it, to some extent uh fail drills and that is okay uh when i took my concealed carry class uh well, or it was a concealed carry tactics classes after I got my license. Uh, but the same facility as the rifle classes I went to, I took the pistol course. We shot the point one tactics cold start, which is very oh, yeah. tough. And uh, the instructor it's actually so failed, you know, and it's like yeah, that. Good. Yeah, it's like that. Uh, I you realize that the instructor is fallible. And not in that you're trying to prove them wrong, but just that you understand that what you're, it's not, it's not like you just suck at this and it's really easy. It's that there is difficulty here and it kind of like, you know, brings everyone down to earth a little bit and makes it just a little bit easier. And that, that apprehensiveness kind of fades away as you step into, you know, the next drill and everything else going on. I want to interrupt this episode to tell you guys all about our friends over at Ben Franklin Range. Guys, you've heard our episodes, you've heard our discussions, you've heard it mentioned on social media. The facility at Ben Franklin is absolutely top-notch. They're located out in Templeton, Pennsylvania. And guys, this is a one-stop shop. They have 1,200 acres of land. So whether you want to go practice some overlanding and do some off-roading, or you're looking for a facility to host a CQB class, they have a shoot house. You're looking for a place to host a shooting course. They have not one, but two turf ranges. Maybe you want to stretch out, you want to reach out to distance. They have an absolutely outstanding long distance, actually unknown distance range that is available for rent. You guys can head over to their website at benfranklinrange.com for more information, and you can reach out and contact the team there at BFR via email at info at benfranklinrange.com or give them a call. 412-439-8751. Guys, it's an absolutely outstanding facility. Cannot recommend them enough. Now let's get back to this week's discussion. Yeah, I, you know, the instructor, I told you in that firearms instructor class that um, I ran last summer, I I told them all that. I said, you know what, if you fail a drill, if you get up here to do a Mozambique or whatever, and you throw one over the head, that's great. Just look at the students and tell them why you did that. Was the gun still in motion? Did you not see it? Uh, What was it that you did wrong? Ask them what they think that you did wrong and then tell them what you did wrong and then do it again and get it perfect. And I told them if you have to do it two or three times before you get it perfect, not only does it make you relatable, like you just said, but it helps them see, okay, those are the errors that he or she made. And now they corrected them and freaking nailed it. And I just think there's so much learning to be to be had out of a, I won't say a botched demo, but a demo that didn't go perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, you're human and so are the students. I think it's just something that, you know, and if you're a really great shooter and you don't fail drills, like, man, I'm jealous. But uh, like, I, I fail probably just as many as I pass, if not, you know, fail more than I pass. Uh, it's a constant evolution. And I, I don't like regard myself as a great shooter, but uh, it's totally fine. You know, I, I think that there's some stigma with that. I mean, that's why we, that's why we work on stuff. That's why we practice. It's why we try to raise the standard as we achieve things instead of just staying complacent, which it, it truthfully, I think is one of the, the biggest issues I have. And I don't, I'd be interested to hear your opinion around like agency standards where it's mm-hmm. defined. It's the same thing for 15 or 20 years. And like, you guys didn't think at some point 
we should reevaluate this or raise the bar or or alter how we're we don't have any better metrics or tools for making an evaluation. It, it's been 15 years, you know, we've yeah. had some changes. Yeah. Agency standards are a battle that we're constantly fighting uh, in, in the bigger agencies. So I think the best qualification courses I've seen uh, evolve every maybe two or three years and they're based on officer involved shooting statistics. So, you know, a lot of your, good law enforcement agency qualification courses are going to have a lot of stuff at about seven yards. But what I'm starting to see more of is one or two drills shooting on the move. So, um, you know, maybe moving from like seven yards to three yards while you do a fail to stop drill or something like that, two body, one head for anybody that doesn't know what that is. Uh, or, incorporating a little bit more distance. So I I would like to see our qualification course. It's a 50 round course. And right now we've got two hits from the 15 and then we've got two hits from the 25, but I would like to see, you know, maybe one more at the 15 and one more at 20. I think that distances in pistol engagements, you know, are, I think it's around 21 feet, um, seven yards is, is the average, still the average distance of engagement. Um, but what we're starting to see more and more of is the active shooter scenario, right? So where you're having to make hits with a pistol, maybe 40, 50 yards out. And I just don't see a lot of agency pistol standards incorporating that. Uh, we are getting a little bit away from some of the goofy stuff, like the really close weapon retention stuff that doesn't happen statistically as much as it used to. And so you're starting to see like weapon presentations where you used to have the six steps, grip, clear, rock and lock, you know, where you go to the 90 and then mm -hmm. smack, get hands on the gun, extend. We've really started to take out that rock and lock shoot from the hip step because statistically it's just not something that we're seeing. It was a, a really a 90s um, thing. I think officers have been trained over the last two decades to, to keep distance and create distance where and when possible. And then I see a lot more agencies emphasizing and encouraging people to go out and do more hand-to-hand -hand training and more jujitsu that's getting really popular in agencies. And I think that all of that stuff teaches you to keep distance. So yeah, you have to, uh, a lot of agencies still have six round drills based on the revolver and it's like, come on guys, get into the century. 17. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. How does, so, I mean, obviously you're well read into all of this and everything. How did you, uh, end up teaching. I don't think we ever like talked about that, but uh, going from, like you said, when you started not knowing much of anything about firearms to like, it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say it's your whole person. I don't want to make that assumption because I don't know you, but it is a large uh, portion undoubtedly of, of who you are and your passion in life and everything. What, what happened? Yeah. So um, I think uh, God blessed me with a, uh, midget frame. So I'm five, two and you know, my driver's license says one fifteen, but we won't talk about how much I actually weigh. No, I'm kidding. I'm a tiny little person. I look like a middle schooler, you know, and, um, I came into law enforcement when I was 22 years old, no military background. I'd just been to school for criminal justice and they put the worst gun possible into my hands. It was a Glock 22. So it's a 40 caliber plastic gun that kicks like a damn mule. 
And I'm just this little tiny thing that's like I said, as big as your middle school kid or as big as a freshman in high school. I'm just this tiny person with this huge, stupid gun on top of having a big, stupid gun. I had, uh, I won't say big, stupid instructors, but, you know, probably 75% of them were big, stupid instructors. They, 25% of them had the hearts of teachers and they were humble and wanted to see you succeed. And the other 75% were just really happy to have that certificate that was really hard to get that said Alaska Department of Corrections, Firearms Instructor, Alaska Police Standards Council certified. Awesome. That's awesome that you have that piece of paper, but you're an asshole and you do not have the heart of a teacher. And I watched so many people in our agency and I experienced um, the guys with the big egos standing behind you, just screaming at you that you sucked or you weren't good at shooting. And um, luckily I was naturally a pretty good marksman. You know, I figured out if you hold the gun still and run the trigger smooth, you make good hits. And um, I got so angry. I think after my basic 40 hour class with the, um, garbage, I think attitudes from the instructors and the amount of ego. And I just, you know, I got out onto the streets and, and in doing my job, I was like, man, we are dealing with some dangerous people, murderers, rapists, hundred percent of the people that I deal with and show up and surprise them at their house are felons. And in a lot of cases, I'm going out later to do these rural visits in places where backups four hours away. And all I have is a pistol. And so it became really apparent to me really quickly that me and all of my colleagues needed much higher level um, training when it came to firearms. And so I knew that I was really good at teaching. I knew that I was blessed with the gift of patience and that in order to be a good teacher, not only do you have to want to see your students succeed at a higher level than they, like, I want all my students to be better than me. That's my goal. Um, and I can, and I can do that in a patient way. Um, but I knew that in order to, I knew that in order to apply that, I had to get really good at this shooting thing, right? So I think firearms instruction is two things. It's one, understanding the fundamentals of shooting and understanding the gun inside and out and how it works. And then the other half of that is you have to be a good instructor. You have to be a good teacher. And luckily, both of those things uh, can be learned. I don't think Everybody is, I don't think one guy is as naturally patient as the next guy, but I think you can definitely teach methods of instruction and make people good instructors if they want to be. So anyway, my whole goal was, you know, even though there's only been two female firearms instructors ever in my department at the point where I became a firearms instructor, I was like, I'm going to do it, even though it's going to piss all these guys off. And they were pissed off when I went through the FI class and I passed it. There was like a 25% pass rate for that class at the time. And I passed it. It was like when I walked into the room to teach a firearms class and I was, you know, 115 pound girl with blonde hair, it automatically made all their certificates like less worthy somehow in their minds or less manly. And they literally hated me. Like I, I seriously felt like hatred coming off of a lot of the other instructors, but that that made me who I am today. And they would say like, oh, she's not even that good of a shooter. She's an instructor. She's not even that good. And that was true. That was absolutely true. So I started competitive shooting six or seven years ago now. And what law enforcement trainers could never teach me, competitive shooting and civilian trainers taught me. They taught me how to hit a freaking target no matter what. They taught me to have the mindset that I'm going to get alphas all the time, that I can shoot way faster than I think I'm capable of shooting. 
And that none of that comes just because I want it to, it comes with hard work. And so I worked my ass off for six or seven years um, to get really, really good at shooting to the point where there was no question that I was one of the top, I mean, like on one hand shooters in my department, um, especially when it came to instructors. So now I had the shooting part down and I was already a good teacher. So those things combined, I mean, I had to work really hard for 18 years for my leadership to be like, do you want to take over the firearms program here at the agency? And I was able to implement rapid changes. I took our basic in uh, our basic pistol class. We have recruits come through twice a year from a 25% pass rate to 100. On average, I've done um, three basic classes so far, and we've had one student fail wow. out of all of those classes pretty good. And then I've totally revamped our firearms instructor program um, to create some really good instructors. So back to your original question, how did you get into all this? It was pure hatred for the way that I was treated and for the way that egos were fearing with officers getting training that could save their lives and save the lives of others. So. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it's, that doesn't surprise me to hear it. You know, I, I think it's, as much as we talk about it on this podcast and it gets talked about a lot in social media, there's like a, unfortunately, an incestuous nature to a lot of training in law enforcement. And it is, it's just that way. And, you know, hopefully it's changing. It sounds like it, you hear more stories about things changing and more uh, accepted ideas and things being uh, allowed instead of just, I don't know. I I hate that the closed mindedness of it really, because, you know, you see the, the, the success we've had in military and law enforcement applications from, like you said, civilian competition shooters that, I mean, yeah. Are they going to be guaranteed good at law enforcement? No, but they can teach you so much about how to run a gun and be proficient and efficient. And it's like, why would, why would you not go to them? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, why would you not go to a mechanic to find out how to fix your car better or to drive better? Like you look at a specialist in a lot in, in every other way of life. Um, why it took so long to get competitive shooters in the conversation was always one of those things. When I, when I figured out that was a thing, I, it never made sense to me. Like, why not? Like, you don't have to do everything they do, but take what yeah, you can. I, uh, I can't remember who, but I took a class from a, a special forces guy and he said that you know, even back in the, the mid to late nineties, they had guys like, um, you know, Rob Latham and just high level competitive shooters come in and, and help train special forces. And while leadership sometimes balked at it, it was like, these guys can hit targets and they can hit them really fast and accurately. Why not bring them in? So I think that's been, you know, sort of a more, a, a thing that's growing in popularity and, and, even in the last five years, just being on social media and paying attention to the instructor culture, I've seen a lot less fighting amongst military law enforcement and civilians, and I've seen a lot more collaboration and it's just, you know, good for everybody. Well, and I think that it's a lot personally, just in my own experience, I think it's a lot more the teacher than it is the curriculum. I mean, if you look at it, because and one of the things I really like about what you do on on Instagram with your videos and your posts and everything is it's I don't want to say everything's fundamental, but you harp a lot on fundamentals because that's where I, I at least in my personal experience and what I've observed in people is when you have fundamental breakdowns, 
whether you realize it or not, you're trying to do something more like, you know, faster, more difficult, more high end, whatever term you want to use. It's not because you can't do that yet. It's because you have a breakdown fundamentally somewhere else and fix, you know, going back three steps, not just one step is what addresses it. Um, and a lot of times I've found that on the civilian side of things, you know, like, yeah, you, you were never a pipe hitter. You never did a lot of whatever, you know, but you are a good communicator and you have the passion to be a better communicator and convey these points, I think. Yes, I just think that you you have to humanize it. And when you speak to people with respect, you know, adult learning has theory has come a long way, I think, even in the last 20 years since I started teaching. And it, it went from a really militaristic, um, you're dumb and I'm smart to more of a collaboration thing. I see instructors on the line now in classes talking to people like humans, allowing people to make adaptations for like hand size and physical ability. You know, whereas like back in the day, everybody had to do a press check a certain way. Now, if we get, you know, a girl that comes into class with fingers that are as long as a little smoky sausage, you know, we'll let her come up over this back of the slide and pull it down because, you know, you just, we're, we're just more flexible and, and willing to make accommodations, I think, nowadays and, and talk to people like, like they're adults. Yeah, it, which is, is incredible to think that that was ever a, a an issue. I mean, I, I get it to an extent you want to emulate the military and everyone has their assumptions they draw there, but it just, it doesn't to me anyways, is it, I, I don't get it. Um, and I never really, I never learned well that way, you know, whether it was in school or, uh, I was a musician for like my formative years and everything or, or work, you know, uh, I never learned well under those kinds of conditions. And I don't think most people do, uh, which no. is weird to you know, that's how you're going to train them in a life and death situation where you want them to have maximum retention of information. Yeah. The other thing that I think, uh, well, at least in our firearms program, what one thing that's made us really successful in teaching people, a lot of people come to our agency, they have zero experience at all. And so kind of what we've done is where we used to with the 40 hour class, just sort of throw them into the fire, you know, day one, you'd be, you know, all right, we're going to shoot pairs at seven yards and they, they didn't even really know the ins and outs of a, a semi-automatic pistol and how it worked. And their coaches are yelling over gunfire. And so the environment was just really bad. And, and one thing that we learned is that we definitely had to separate the, we had to separate learning the mechanics of the gun from the shooting part of it. So before people even come into one of our basic classes now, we make them do X number of hours of pre-course work. And that's just, you know, learning the basic parts of the gun, um, figuring out what the trigger feels like dry, understanding how far you have to pull back the slide to reset the trigger, um, seeing what the sights are supposed to look like against targets um, before we get you onto the range, learning how to reload, learning how to clear malfunctions with dummy rounds. So they can get on the range and before they've even sent one round out of the barrel, they could clear a type three malfunction or a fail to fire or something like that. And they, you, I think anybody that hasn't shot a pistol a lot before they go to a 40 hour course, you have to build up certain muscles and create certain calluses on your hands. And so for them to go in there feeling like maybe not quite like John Wick yet, maybe like his dumb little fifth grade cousin, but they, they know the business end of the gun now and you know how to hold a magazine. That's just given us such a great starting point on day one. It's like, 
I tell all the instructors now, instead of being nervous that you're going to get flagged and trying to explain which way is the right way to put a magazine in with gunfire going off. Now we put in this pre-course work. They, you know, can blindfolded clear a, a double feed out of a gun. And I, I say, you know, I, I baked you guys cupcakes. And now this week we're going to put the frosting on instead of, you know, back in the day where you're just like, all right, here's the cake mix and the eggs. And we're, you know, and then by day three, you've got somebody that still doesn't have a belt that fits them because nobody ever bothered to dry practice with them or make sure they had the right holster before they came to the course. And you got one guy that's shooting perfect scores because he's got prior military. It just keeps everybody on a way more even keel mm-hmm. and it helps them have that confidence coming into the class. Do you... F- so, and okay, so this may be like a total misconception, but you talked about like not knowing how to manipulate the firearms and stuff. And, you know, I'm sure not all of Alaska looks like the great white wilderness, <clears throat> but do you get a lot of agencies that are still running things like, like scout rifles and things like that? That's not, you know, cause in a lot of the lower 48 here, I mean, it's pretty much an AR, right? Everyone runs an AR. Um, and I don't know how often you guys run into wildlife or if that's even a consideration for stuff like that. But I know I've seen a little bit of scout rifle stuff on your Instagram and I really wanted to ask about it because I think it's an awesome concept and I might build one in the near future here. I'm not sure. But um, is that a thing up there? No, you know, law enforcement agencies in Alaska, I would say, have always been sort of ahead of the power curve just because everybody up here is obsessed with guns. There's such a gun culture up here. So we're always, you know, I think we're pretty far ahead technology wise and all that. Um, What I have seen that's just such a bummer is a lot of agencies. And I think, I think I'm I'm seeing them move away from shotguns and it freaking kills me because shotguns are so versatile and just all purpose. I I just, I love them as a tool for law enforcement or for life in general, self-defense. Um, you, you talked about animals like I know Anchorage Police Department or even the troopers a lot of times have to go put moose down because people hit them with a car and they're just kind of suffering on the side yeah. of the road. Uh, be able to have a 12 gauge with a slug. I mean, that was just such a great tool, you know, so you're not shooting close range with a pistol or a rifle and into, you know, a moose or something like that. But I've seen them get way away from shotguns and pretty much now in the patrol cars, you'll see rifles, you'll see ARs. And, um, you know, the, the PRS guys, like the snipers and stuff, Mm -hmm. I don't even, they have, but they definitely have really nice bolt action guns. Um, and then the scout rifle stuff that you see on my Instagram is just me being the biggest, you know, Colonel Cooper fan and gun nerd in the entire world, like have to have a scout rifle to go into the woods. Um, but yeah, that'd be really cool if you built one, uh, I'm not a gun builder. I think the factories can do it better than I can do it any day of the week. So I just, you know, tend to buy a lot of things, but, um, that one that I have is a Ruger gun sight scout and I'm not a super happy with the reliability of it, but I probably put like, I don't know. Oh, it's over a thousand, probably between a thousand and 2000 rounds of 308 through it. And I don't know that a lot of people would put a bolt action 308 to the test like that just because it's expensive, but I love shooting that thing. And, um, yeah, it's not super accurate, but I mean, what do you expect? It's a 16 inch barrel and a 308. So actually my, my buddy, Josh, just, uh, he just went through that whole ordeal. Um, he bought a Ruger American or something like that. And like took it to a place, had the barrel chopped down actually to fight with the guy. Cause he wanted to tell him about how the ballistics were going to suffer. And he goes, I know that's fine. I want it. And, uh, long story short, it, 
it took him, uh, it went five weeks without getting done. Yeah. And he ended up just going and picking it up and taking it to another shop that got it done in a week. And I was like, dude, Did, has he- I told you, man, it was going to be a problem. He didn't want to listen to me. Um, uh, it's done yeah. now, though. He likes it. I'd be curious to see what kind of accuracy he's getting out of it because I've, I've tried all different kinds of ammo and I've heard that those rear barrels are, you know, sort of hit and miss, but, um, I have never been able to get that under a, like it's between a 1.5 and two MOA gun. And I'm just like, man, I wish it was better for a, for being a 308. And I don't think it's the 16 inch barrel. I don't think it impacts the ballistics that much, but I think it's just kind of a, I think something is inconsistent at the factory there. I, th- I think it was, it might be a savage. Um, <clears throat> he sent me a video cause he went out this weekend to zero it. And unfortunately he had, uh, you know, one of the two Picatinny sections come loose and oh. he had, he had like giant groups. He's like, this is, this is a problem. So, um, I was going to, I thought about it as soon as you said the huge groups, I was like, oh, maybe that, maybe it was the barrel. And I'm like, no, he told me the mount was crap. So yeah, I don't know. We still got to figure it out. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just always so bummed. I don't, you know what I always do if I can't get something to shoot as accurately as I want it to, I'll give it to my son. You know, he's, he's one of the best marksmen in the entire world. And if he shoots like two or three, he's like, no mom, you're, it's not you. <laughs> it's like this barrel is it. And so, and you know, I've tried all kinds of different ammo with that thing, but you know what, at the end of the day, I think a scout rifle has to be good enough. And I don't know that I would, I'd want it to stretch out, you know, to two or three hundred if it, if it had to, but ethically just as a hunter in Alaska, I would not take a shot that was farther than 200 on an animal. I just wouldn't. Um, the farthest one that I've ever taken was, uh, 150 on a caribou. And that was with the 6.8, um, that I built. And that was just a beautiful freaking shot. I mean, luckily, uh, but I mean, I don't know how far you'd want a scout rifle to stretch, but yeah, I'm not super well-versed in like, I understand the concept. It's not super well-versed in like the application or your expectations of performance. And, uh, I think it's like one of those kitschy, cool, uh, you know, like ideas and concepts that unfortunately just doesn't get like the love that I think it should for what it can do, especially in our space where everyone <clears throat> I've talked about before, like everyone wants to, you know, oh, I'm going to bug out if shit happens. I'm like, okay, do you have the, the kinds of stuff you need for that? Are you going to just use your AR to go hunt deer? Because five, five, six is not what I think you believe it is in that instance. You should step it up a bit. Do you have a platform that can do those things? And, uh, it's just, uh, I, I mean, hopefully in the future, you know, see, we can bring it back and we'll, we'll make it, we'll make it a thing. Oh, I'm totally with you. Like, I think as much as I'm as much nine millimeter and five, five, six as I shoot, when push comes to shove, when I step out into the woods to go for a hike, I'm not carrying a flipping nine millimeter. Most of the time I, I either grab a 40, um, you know, cause I'm 90 years old or I'll grab a 10 millimeter, just, it's just because nine millimeter doesn't have, and we can sit here and get into like the caliber argument, but I'm sorry, at the end of the day, if you have a huge steel popper at 25 yards and you hit it with a nine millimeter, and then you go out and hit it with a 40, the 40 is going to have quite a bit more impact than the nine millimeter. And, um, when I'm running around out in the woods, yeah, I just, I love to grab that little scout rifle because it's seven pounds. So anybody that's ever had to carry around like a a 13 pound hunting rifle for two or three days, automatically when you have the weight and grab that little scout rifle, you're like, oh yeah, this, this feels a lot better. And then, like you said, there's just like this confidence that I have with a 308 versus, you know, a five, five, six. 
that I just think people don't think about or, or don't understand. Yeah. I mean, and I, I only really had one experience with any kind of wildlife and we were in like Northern Michigan. My buddy's got a uh, family property up there and he's been going up there every summer since he was four. He's now like 38. Like you ever seen any bears up here? No, dude, I've been up here years, 30 years, never seen a bear. You know, cool. Walking through the woods, looking for like where he's going to put his deer blind. We, we see a coyote. We start following it. It goes into like a cornfield that they plant up there specifically for like elk guides and hunt, whatever. So you go into this cornfield. I have no idea why we're following it. We go left and come out into a clearing and there's like a service road or something. Long story short, turn around and there's two black bear cubs. I think they're black bears that just come scurrying out of this cornfield we were in. And it's not a large cornfield. Like this is like a small plot of maybe like 50 yards by 50 yards that somebody planted. And I go, uh, dude, what happened to no bears? He's like, I've never seen them here before. He goes, so where's mom? He's like, well, don't you have your gun? I'm like, dude, what do you think a nine millimeter Glock is going to do against a bear? Like, I suggest we go away like now. <laughs> and I think he had like a shotgun with bird shot in it because bird, it was, you know, you can, you can hunt small game or something like, do we need to get out of here? All right. Like this is, this is why I wanted you to let me carry a rifle and there's stupid rules hey. up there on his ranch are prohibitive, but yeah. That's so funny. I always get the, it's like the dumbest question, but whenever I post about 10 millimeter, people are always like, oh my gosh, no, you need like a 44 mag or you need a 454 Kazool or something. And I'm like, those guns are so devastating. Like, I love that they put a one inch hole in whatever you're shooting at. Um, but have you ever shot a 454 Kazool and seen that it takes a full business day for you to recover from the recoil before you can send another round. Like that's the huge argument for 10 millimeter for me is that I can put two or three 10 millimeter rounds into a target just because I can control the recoil better uh, for every one round of 454 Kasool I can put into a target. And when a bear is running at you, if you can get two or three rounds down range in a second versus one in a second or whatever your split times would be with a 454, I think that's going to be a huge advantage just because a moving target that's running at you and you got all that adrenaline. Great. If you connect with one of those bigger revolvers, not so great. If you don't connect, you just need to be sending rounds down. Yeah, no, it's yeah. It just makes more sense. Like for, for anybody and everybody, if you're going to be out in the woods, I don't care. Follow-up shots matter um, for yeah. reasons other than even hitting the targets. Like if you're not even trying to hit them, you're trying to scare them away because you love animals, a lot, a bigger, louder noise for more time is going to do better for you than, than just, you know, like you said, a single, you know, bang. Um, yeah. So I'm a huge uh, for chest rigs too, especially for people out hunting or on four wheelers or hiking or whatever, mm -hmm. just waistband is not practical. And, you know, as much as I love to say like, I carry a scout rifle around, I'm not going to have it slung on my back while I'm out on an ATV or something. And so those chest rigs are just everything. Um, anybody listening, there's an Alaska company called Diamond D um, Leather, and they're based out of Wasilla, but they have some of the most, um, I guess, famous chest rigs in the world. People are always like, oh, they're leather. That's like, you know, what if it gets wet or something, but they're super comfortable. And I've got one for, um, I've got one for my Smith and Wesson 10 millimeter and one for my Glock 20. And then I also, they've got a smaller company that makes uh, nylon ones. And I love just like a tiny little black chest rig for running, like wear a black shirt and run down the side of the road. And most people don't even notice that you have it on. And it keeps it off your waistband. No, absolutely. Um, 
and we're kind of coming up on on time and pushing our limit here but um before we kind of wrap can you tell the listeners if they aren't aware uh, of you and what you do where they can find you online with your uh if they're in alaska and they're training um or they want to look you up on instagram where they can find you yay okay so for everybody that didn't turn it off as soon as they heard a girl voice thank you so much for staying on <laughs> because this conversation has been so much fun. Um, you can find me on Instagram at amyamy.556. If you don't put the dot, you're going to get a very interesting amy556 that wears less clothes. She's much prettier, but you're going to mm-hmm. want amy556. And I am also on, you can go to my website and that is 556 training. Dot com And I've got a bunch of drills there in a library of rifle, pistol, shotgun um, exercises that you can look at. And I've got some printout targets that you can have for free. And then, of course, on my website, I've got my email address. If you have any questions or want to reach out, I'm at amyamy.556x, just one X at gmail.com. If you keep adding X's, I don't know what you're going to get. Fair enough. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'm sure you probably get some interesting messages as it is, but uh, this has been, this has been awesome and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time. I'd love to do it again. Hopefully it doesn't take us like another 12 months or something to to, to reconnect and everything. Yeah. Things are so much more organized now. So uh, anytime it was my absolute honor to be on here and um, thank you so much for wanting to talk to me and giving me your time today, Austin. I appreciate it. That was a really cool conversation, guys. Uh, just the passion that's there with with Amy, and not that you, you know. I always I always feel like I have to justify those statements and 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 say that you know other guests have had passion too. But you know, uh, it, it's really cool because having been somebody who went through the training process and went through the experience that she did, and then hearing that because she had a poor experience and because she was changed or impacted or or moved, you know, whatever word you want to use for it enough that she felt that it was something she wanted to do and take on and just, you know, went with it and passion uh, and patience carried her through it. It's, it's really cool to hear that. Um, it's kind of the way that I was with teaching music um, or am since I still do it. And, uh, you don't hear about it that way all the time. You know what I mean? It's something where some people have good experiences, some people have bad experiences. I'm not saying that you can only be a good teacher if you don't have a bad experience, like that whole forged in fire type of ordeal. But I will say there is something to be said for going through a terrible experience, uh, with an instructor or an educator and coming out better for it, you know, on the other side. Uh, I can certainly relate. I've, I've had great teachers uh, in terms of my shooting experiences and in my music experiences. And I can honestly tell you, since I have a lot more time with music in my life than I did with shooting, um, that, you know, I still shape a lot of what I do as a communicator, a lot of what I do as a musician and an educator. I still shape a lot of that around a poor experience I had with a poor educator, a poor instructor, somebody who, because they had done something at a very high level, uh, held themselves in a very high regard, thought that that was an instant translation into how everyone else should hold them and the regard everyone else should carry them in. And it's just not, 
you know, we, we say things like respect is earned, not given, and some people hear it and some people don't. So to hear that how that's how, you know, Amy came came to to do what she does now, which we all see and enjoy on Instagram and learn from. And if you guys aren't, like I really do urge you to go check out what she's putting out on her Instagram page. It's easy to look at some content and say that's fundamental. I don't need it. But, you know, honestly, I start to find a lot more appreciation and brilliance when people are able to explain to me the way that fundamentals work or even their explanation on how fundamentals should be approached and how they work because everybody does things a little bit differently. And that was, that was kind of something we talked about, you know, in the conversation today on, but truly everyone communicates differently. You can still be an effective communicator and, you know, pass the message along in a different way than somebody else might. Right. Certainly. Uh, but to hear how somebody else explains it, to hear how somebody else likes to phrase something or how they approach it, maybe they, you know, you, you see like grip is a great example and you see people talk about forming your right grip and then form your left grip and now you just put them together. And, you know, a lot of people learn that way and you just make it work over time and, and trial and error. And then you get people that are, you know, they teach both hands at the same time and how they lock together. And, you know, it's it, it just it, it it's very different person to person. And what makes sense for one person may not have been how somebody else learned it, but it may make more sense to them, especially if they're struggling. Like grip for me was a tremendous issue when I learned how to shoot. And it took me probably two years to, to figure it out. Not to say that I have it mastered. And I don't still have issues because I do. But. It, it took me a long time to get past those gremlins of just inconsistency and not knowing what grip was really and things like that. So I really enjoy what Amy does from a content perspective. Um, I know she's actually gotten some video out there with uh, like with Lucas from T-Rex and things when I believe they were at SHOT Show a couple of years ago, which is super cool. Um, and, you know, I'll just say it like she's a woman out here doing this in a world that's dominated by men, which I think is cool. But it also goes to show you that <clears throat> if you're a woman or if you're trying to you're trying to get your, your spouse to engage in this lifestyle and, you know, oh, you can do it, you can't do it, you know, all these things that come with that whole conversation, unfortunately. Hey, she does this and she's active in law enforcement. It's It, it tears down a lot of the walls and barriers that we've put in place for dumb, dumb reasons. Um, you know, so I, I do, I implore you guys go check out what she's got going on. If you're in Alaska, definitely try and look up her classes. Um, you know, it's, it's one of these things like I absolutely a hundred percent regret the fact that I have not been able to find anybody locally to me here in Michigan. That's a good, well, I mean, good firearm instructor and get them to be on the podcast. Uh, certainly met some good instructors There's a couple, one that's not exactly local, a couple that are local ish, but you know, haven't been able to join for different reasons and things like that. Um, but I do always try to recommend when people are listening, and if you're not aware of, you know, this individual who comes on as my guest, and geographically speaking, you're near them, it, it's always a little bit surprising to me if you're plugged into this community at all, how people still aren't aware of some very, very talented and passionate and amazing individuals like Amy. So if you're if you're in Alaska, I I'd say look up her class, see what she's got going on, see if you can get out there. You know, maybe not right now because apparently the weather's going to be real gnarly uh, up 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 there, and uh, it's certainly heading that way here in Michigan. I think uh, come Martin Luther King Day, which is about six days away, five days away, whatever, um, it's going to be like a low of eight degrees, 
which is not negative temperatures, but it sure as hell is not fun to deal with. I can tell you that. So if we get any kind of accumulation in snow, um, you know, for those of you guys in the warmer climates, count your blessings. I know you guys have a whole different set of issues you deal with, but up here, uh, it means very treacherous. And I do use that word pretty appropriately. It's a treacherous commute to work. My wife drives 45 minutes on days she's at, you know, in the office. Um, and I can only imagine uh, how that's going to be exacerbated by the road conditions, um, which, you know, it is what it is. But hopefully you guys enjoyed the discussion um, and learned some stuff from Amy. And uh, that's all I got for you guys this week. Uh, so until next time, everybody, stay safe out there. And like we always say, work hard, train smarter, and be prepared. <laughs>